the reality of heaven. The adjective heavenly, that's a describing word, and it describes the invitation for us here in chapter 3-1. But there are six times that it comes up in the book, and I want to just run through them very quickly here in the introduction. Chapter 6-4 is the second one, and you will see, for it is impossible for those who were enlightened to have tasted of the heavenly gift, that's grace, the gospel. Gospel comes from heaven. It's not man-made. It's not produced by the church. The gospel is God's plan, and it comes from heaven itself. Welcome to Let the Bible Speak. This is Ian Goller here, and again today we let the Bible speak on the message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves. And the title of our message today from the pulpit of our church is The Right Time to Be Saved. And of course, the right time is now, this moment, this hour. We cannot guarantee another day. We cannot guarantee another breath. The Lord is the one that giveth, and the Lord taketh away. And our life is but a vapor. It is short and unpredictable. We cannot tell the day, the hour, nor the situation of our passing out of this world into eternity. So that's the title of our message on the right time to be saved. We also have a little segment on gambling. Righteousness exalteth a nation but sin is a reproach to any people. You may be wondering, why do we consider gambling to be a sin? Well, it is linked directly to greed and to that insatiable desire to be rich in this world's goods, and also rich without labor. Uh, the Bible says that if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. And so the work ethic, the Bible lays great emphasis upon it. And it is important that we serve the Lord and that we use the talents and gifts that he has given us and not seek to be uh, enhanced by some get-rich-quick scheme. So let's stay tuned as we come to our message today, The Right Time to be Saved. Well, Hebrews chapter 3. The book of Hebrews is a different kind of book. Um, no one is settled on who actually wrote it. I think it was Paul the Apostle. I'm settled on that, but I'm by no means uh, the one who is to settle the issue. Down through the history of the church, there's been all kinds of discussions on who actually wrote the book of Hebrews. And of course, that begs the question, well, how did it ever get into the Bible if we are not 100% sure of who wrote it? Well, the canon of Scripture, what we call the books that are included from Genesis to Revelation, uh, was settled in the days of the apostles. And it was read in the early church. And so it was consistently used from day one, we could say, in the first century, and it was settled. So it's not a debate about should we even have this book in the Bible, but the discussion is who actually wrote it, because it's different. 
The book of Romans, for example, which was written by the Apostle Paul, is very logical. And the book of Romans doesn't include a lot of things, especially like terms like verse 1 here, high priest. You'll not find the reference to high priest in the book of Romans. And also verse 1 is the first time that the Lord Jesus is referred to as an apostle. That means sent one. Now, Messiah can also mean sent one, but the actual word behind apostle here is in the Greek apostolos, and it's uniquely used, and it's the first time in the New Testament that our Lord Jesus is referred to as an apostle. There's another theme that runs through this book, and that is the word heavenly. And what you have here in chapter 3, 1 is a heavenly invitation. Now, it's heavenly because it's a, an invitation that comes from heaven, and it invites us to prepare for heaven, to enter heaven. So, it is truly a heavenly invitation. Now, if you look very carefully at verse 1, there are five key words I want to really uh, lay hold of here. Partakers of the heavenly calling. Let me put that in Ian speak. Sharers of the heavenly invitation. That's what is spoken of here. And if you analyze each word, you will find that you are included as a Christian. You're included in this heavenly invitation. The word partakers, a participant, it's for you. And what an amazing thing. What a great statement is being made to these readers of this letter. Now, Hebrews is relating to Jewish converts, people who were Hebrew by birth and by culture. And many of them came to faith, to profess faith in the Lord Jesus. That was a mighty radical thing. And they are referred to here as partakers. The other thing that comes out of this is that there is a real heaven. Heaven's a real place. It's a place that we ought to be dwelling upon and thinking on regularly. And the whole book of Hebrews is premised on the reality of heaven. The adjective heavenly, that's a describing word, and it describes the invitation for us here in chapter 3, 1. But there are six times that it comes up in the book, and I want to just run through them very quickly here in the introduction. Chapter 6, 4 is the second one, and you will see, for it is impossible for those who were enlightened to have tasted of the heavenly gift. That's grace, the gospel. Gospel comes from heaven. It's not man-made. It's not produced by the church. The gospel is God's plan, and it comes from heaven itself. Chapter 8, verse 5, you have the earthly tabernacle versus the heavenly tabernacle, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make 
the tabernacle. And we know from Scripture that the tabernacle, that tent that they erected continually in their wanderings in the wilderness, that its dimensions and many things were taken from the pattern of heavenly things. And of course, the heavenly will be far better. It will be enduring. It will be eternal. It will not be like a tent that is put up and taken down, but it is the everlasting and eternal tabernacle. It's heavenly. Hebrews 9.23 is number 4. Hebrews 9.23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So again, you have heavenly as a description of the better nature of those heavenly things. Chapter eleven sixteen is the next verse, but now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to call, be called their God. Now, these are all the heroes of faith. You have uh, Enoch, you have uh, Moses, you have Noah, and you have all the men and women of faith listed here in Hebrews 11, and they were looking for a heavenly, a better home, the eternal home. And then the last reference is chapter 12, verse 22, where you have the word heavenly again. We are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It is described as heavenly. Now, we know there's the earthly Jerusalem. There's the location where the temple was built, where Jerusalem is to this day. But then there is the heavenly Jerusalem. It is superior, and it's eternal. The earthly will pass away, but the heavenly will never pass away. How much do you think about heaven? How much time do you spend wondering what heaven will be like when we end this life in this world. Now, if you were given a brochure and someone said to you, you you're going to Australia on a month vacation, boy, you would search through that brochure and you would look up all the details of the trip, of the experiences that are ahead of you. You'd want to know what the weather's like, the climate, the people, and the unique things to see, you would spend a lot of time focused on that trip, on that experience ahead of you. We as Christians are going to heaven, and we have descriptions here, the heavenly invitation. We are given uh, uh, opportunities to consider the place that we shall one day enjoy. And here in Hebrews, we have that exhortation. Now, can you call yourself today a partaker of the heavenly calling? This is to have the invitation in your hand. This is to say, I'm a sharer in this heavenly invitation. That's why I'm a Christian, and that's why I'm saved, and that's why I'm rejoicing because I'm going to this place called heaven. Now, I want to preach through this chapter 3 today, 
and I want to do it with a big brush, and I want to paint right through this chapter here, what is it about? Number one, Jesus is the right Savior to save you. We're told here in verse 1, consider, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. And then in verse 7, you have the right time to be saved, today. And then in verse 8, you have the right heart to be saved. Harden not your heart. So we have the right Savior, the right time, and the right heart all laid out in this third chapter of Hebrews. So we're going to start with Jesus, the right Savior to save. And you'll see how the writer puts it here in verse 1. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. The apostle. Consider. That means to ponder. Dwell upon this. Let it sink in. And let the Lord Jesus be your confidence, your assurance that you are indeed well saved and a partaker in these heavenly blessings. Now, these Hebrews professed faith in the Lord Jesus, but they had their doubts. And this whole book of Hebrews is intended to quell the doubts the drawing back, and you'll find that term comes up many times in the book, that we're not to draw back. We're not to give up our profession, but we are to lay hold of that profession and pursue. The old root of Judaism was very strong, and it sprouted up ever so often to disturb the hearts and unsettle these minds. Now, they were also paying an awful price to be a Christian in the very first century. Not just Gentiles, but Jews paid a tremendous price. Uh, you remember the wave of persecution that took place within the, the first ten years of the early church. Think of Saul of Tarsus and the raging madness that he went about persecuting Christians, dragging them to prison, seeking their blood, hunting them wherever they would worship as Christians. This was, well, it was the best of days to be a Christian. It was certainly exciting, but it was also the worst of days to be a Christian, because there were many who had to pay the price unto blood for their own salvation. And Christianity was multiplying, but so was the persecution. So was the opposition that was against the people of God. And so it was necessary to write to them, to confirm them in their faith, to give them the facts, to give them the, the, the details on the Savior, to consider the Lord Jesus the apostle and high priest of their profession. So look at verse 1, and let's see the facts that he sets before them. Consider 
the Lord Jesus as your Savior, the right Savior, because he is the apostle, the sent one, the sent one. He's the right one because God sent him, and he has sent no other to be the Savior of men. God sent one Redeemer into this world, his own Son. God had only one Son, and him he sent into this world. And then he also points out that this sent one is our high priest of our profession. And so he's building upon what he taught in chapter 2 of the nature of the high priest. You remember how he needed to be merciful and faithful. And here the Lord Jesus is the one who is merciful and who is faithful. Not only the person, but his office, the work that he came to do. And you are safely saved today. You are safe as a Christian because you are trusting in the right person who has fulfilled the right work. Let that sink into your heart. And so no drawing back, no doubting, no questioning. Don't allow the devil to come with other suggestions and put doubts and fears into your mind. But rejoice that the one you have trusted is the sent one. He's the high priest of our profession. And then also, you'll notice that he is more faithful than Moses. Look at verse 2. Who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Now, think about this. Why would the writer mention Moses? What, what was about Moses? Well, to the Jew... Moses was like, I'm not sure if I should put it this way, but it might quicken it in our minds. He was a cult-like figure, a leader of cultish proportions. If you were a Jew and quoted Moses, that made you 10 feet tall. That made you in the right camp. That showed your loyalty. That showed that you were a, well, to a Jew, that you were a real human being. Because if you were not of that camp. You were a dog. You were a heathen. You were an outcast. But if you were a prodigy or a disciple of Moses, well, you were in. You were in the camp, in the club, and you were accepted. And so, the writer here brings up Moses, that he was faithful in all his house. He was a great man. But look at Jesus. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses' glory, well, he saw the glory of God at the bush, the burning bush. And he saw the glory of God on Mount Sinai. And there was something of the glory of the Lord that radiated to and from his face so that when he came down from the mount and he would speak to men, he needed to cover his face with a veil. Think of the glory that Moses enjoyed. But it was only borrowed glory. It was reflected glory, and it was momentary. The next day it was gone. Now, as testimony lived on, the fact could never be denied that God's glory was radiating 
from his very life. And for that reason, Moses was a figure to be revered. But now think on Christ, who is of more glory. He came from heaven, the second person of the Trinity. He gave up the very glory of heaven and took upon him the form of a servant and human being, entered into the humiliation of man. But even then, his flesh hid for a time the glory that was in him. The Mount of Transfiguration, when his body glistened as the noonday sun. And of course, when he was raised from the dead, the living Christ who appeared in his glory as he appeared to Mary, Peter, and all the disciples, to 500. And before he ascended to heaven, think of the glory that was in Jesus. Paul, now again, the question is, did Paul write this? But if it was Paul, Paul knew much of the glory of the Lord. He saw that glory on the road to Damascus. He was caught up into Arabia, and there he was shown sights of the glory of Christ that were unspeakable, unspeakable glory. And the writer here is pressing the point that if Moses was great, Christ is greater. Don't give up the real glory for a Moses who had but temporary borrowed glory. That's the argument. That's the point that he is making out right here in this passage. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. I'm coming now to the segment on righteousness, exalt of the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And today we're going to look at the vice of gambling. William Secker listed one of the seven deadly sins as avarice, which by definition means the insatiable desire to get riches. One of the daughters of avarice, which the old writers used to mention, was gambling. And the need has not gone by for indicating the true place to which this vice belongs. The desire to make money is undoubtedly at the bottom of the practice. To make money in haste without giving any equivalent for it, and this is its condemnation, but after it has grown into a habit, it becomes a very complex thing. The gambler can hardly tell why he follows with such eagerness the events of the green turf and the fortunes of the green table, there is a fever in his blood which drives him on, rendering ordinary pursuits and ordinary gains steel and making his own heart reckless and hardened. A single act of gambling has an innocent look. The first steps in a gambling career are frequently exhilarating. But the atmosphere soon becomes grimy. The associations and companionships into which it leads are demoralizing, and many a time it ends in the dock and the jail. Gambling is a big problem in Canada. The reason is that provincial governments are the real addicts. The Ontario provincial government itself raked in more than a billion dollars last year from gambling. To do so, it has done everything it can to grow gambling including licensing more casinos, 
allowing ATMs and unrestricted hours of operation in them, and increasing the number of video lottery terminals by five times. The result? The number of gamblers has soared. The Wellesley Institute of Ontario reported in 2013 that gambling is common in Ontario. The Canadian Community Health Survey shows that 66% of Ontarians have gambled within the last 12 months, and 85% of Canadians have gambled at some time in their lifetime. For most people, gambling does not significantly affect their lives and their well-being. Social, financial, and health problems arise, however, for problem gamblers. Problem gambling is often not well-defined in debates about gambling. This can lead to the assumption that unless the gambling is compulsive, it is healthy, responsible, and low-risk. Leading researchers have defined low-risk gambling as gambling no more than two to three times per month, spending less than a total of $500 to $1,000 per year, or gambling less than 1% of a gross family income. People who exceed one or more of these criteria can be described as problem gamblers. The Canadian Public Health Association defines problem gambling as a progressive disorder characterized by a continuous or periodic loss of control over gambling, b preoccupation with gambling and money with which to gamble, c irrational thinking, and d continuation of the activity despite adverse consequences. In other words, you keep losing and yet you still keep playing. Now, the answer to the problem is to seek the true riches which are in Christ. The wonderful thing is that the insatiable greed of man is answered in the hope that comes through a living faith in Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ and have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Him. The poorest Christian is richer than the wealthiest oil sheik or the king of the vastest earthly kingdom. The Holy Spirit becomes our joy of heart. He ministers to us the fullness of contentment and satisfaction of which money is only a mocker. It's better to have a gospel-preaching church in the city than a gambling casino. It's better to have Christians living in the hope of Christ than gamblers robbing the vulnerable like vultures, damning their own souls in doing it. Judas warns us all to of the true outcome of gambling. He traded 30 pieces of silver for his own soul. Let us be warned today not to enter into the gambling casino or any other form of gambling, but to put our trust in the Savior in whom there is no risk, but rather in whom is eternal life, abundant life. That's the confidence of the Christian. You are listening to Let the Bible Speak, the radio broadcast of the Free Presbyterian Church in Canada. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. If you missed part of today's program or would like to hear it again, you can find it archived by program date on our website. Just go to www.l tbs.ca 
CA for Canada. There you can read my blog, find my Bible study notes, audio and video sermons, as well as helpful articles. Or you can go to our podcast on iTunes. We're on the air Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for our full church broadcast and Monday to Friday, 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. on this station to bring you the gospel from our free Presbyterian church here in Cloverdale. We also invite you to our church services on Sundays, 10.30 and 6 p.m. Through our website, you can listen and view to our online services at 10.30 and 6 p.m. Make it your Sunday worship. Click on the Live Now button on the homepage of our website. Or if you would like to talk with me one-on-one as a pastor, please give me a call. The phone number is 604-897-2040. The mailing address is 187 9058 Avenue, Surrey, BC, V3S1M6. We're located just two blocks north of Number 10 Highway on 188th Street. Our website again is ltbs.ca. You can join us Monday to Friday, 5 a.m., 5 p.m., here on this station as we let the Bible speak. Mm-hmm.